The sermon text this morning is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You're all familiar with those words from our Declaration of Independence that uh, the inalienable rights of all humans by nature and by birth is the life, liberty, and the pursuit of of happiness. That's part of our Declaration of Independence, that pursuit of happiness. That's what the establishment of the government was for, to promote a culture in which you can pursue happiness. How well have you done with that? How happy are you? Do you have you found the key to happiness, the meaning and the purpose to your life? I mean, it's something that all of us are striving for. We all want to be happy. We want to sense fulfillment, completion. The preacher searched for happiness. He made a pursuit for happiness. That's what we're studying in Ecclesiastes. He asked the question a little differently in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, what does man gain from all of his toil with which he toils under the sun? He's asking the same question. What's life worth? Do we matter? Is life important? How do I find meaning? Is life just a series of ups and downs and some flashes of happiness, and then it all ends? He wants to know what makes life happy, what makes life satisfied. How can I find satisfaction? He tried wisdom last week. He went down that path, and he found it to be vain. That human wisdom doesn't provide the answers to untangle the enigma of life. We, don't, we, we can't untangle why the rich or why the righteous often die like the poor and the poor die like the rich. We can't understand it all. Well, this week he's going to pursue the path of pleasure. Maybe it's in pleasure, in happiness, in fulfillment that I'll find that sense of aha in my life. So I want to join him on this search. This is his second journey now. Last week, this week, we'll have one next week. 
Let's join him on the journey. This search for satisfaction in pleasure, and then we're going to find his discovery, would be the second point if you were taking notes. He's going to make a discovery, and then I want to pivot after that. Because I want to introduce to you that silver lining again that I think is in the text. I think there's hope in this text. I think there's hope in last week's text. This hope that will lead us from despair, which he's painting us into, despair into delight. So let's look at the search. He's going to look at four areas of pleasure that that we often think will provide that, that joy and happiness in life. Look with me at verse 1, because he says, Simply this, I said in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. These are autobiographical words, right? He's telling us his thoughts, his intentions. He's going to test his own heart. He's going to say, come on, heart, I'm going to test you. That word test is used when the queen of Sheba came to to Solomon to test him, to see if his wisdom really was all that, in fact, it was said to be. He's going to test his heart. He wants to find out, is the answer for life? Is it in the pleasure that I experience? Will that give me, finally, a sense of satisfaction and completeness that all of us desire? The first area that you see he's going to test is wine, merriment, frivolity, enjoyment, the party life. Look with me in verse 3. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Now, a lot, of, a lot of scholars are nervous here. They think that Solomon, or the preacher here, is just going to be a drunkard. You know, he's just going to do bender after bender. I, I don't think he's a blind hedonist here. You see that phrase, my heart is still guiding me with wisdom. He's trying to test, is a life of party after party, entertainment, laughter, joy, Is that what we need to pursue while living under the sun? I don't think he's condemning alcohol here either. If you look at, read it to you, chapter 9, verse 7, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to assess. He's trying to assess what is good, you see that in verse 2, what is good for the children of men to do under the sun for their few days? Maybe that's it. Maybe we should just try to have a a life of partying and and laughter, comedy. Maybe we should just try. Maybe that will be the answer for life. That's still a temptation for us. Alcohol is a temptation. It does cheer the heart. It does make one merry. It lowers inhibitions. It causes laughter to be easy. It takes the edge off of the day. Maybe, maybe, Maybe that's what we pursue. Maybe for you, that's, that's a go-to. It's, uh, life's crushing you, so I'm going to go there and get some relief or laughter or joy. or just I, I want to be entertained from sitcom to sitcom to sitcom. Just laughter will be it for me. Maybe that's what you may be tempted to run to. Well, he tries that. He doesn't find it effective. He, he moves on. You, you see that he, that he moves to the world of work. Look at four and five. It's like the college boy has left the drinking scene, and now he's going to make his mark on society. In four and five, he says, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. 
So here the, the preacher is now talking about, he's trying to find, well, if it's not in the party life, if one series of laughter and, and, and just comedy and drinking, if that's not it, maybe it's establishing things that I can see, that I can build. So he, he, built, he built houses. Now, we know in Scripture the Solomon built houses for his wives, of which he had a few. Uh, so he was quite a builder. He built palaces. He built a palace for himself that took 14 years. It says he built parks. He was a horticulturalist. He planted trees. Not just trees, he planted a forest. He put in fruit trees, gardens. He dug deep wells to, f- to fuel or to fill the, um, to water the trees. I mean, he's kind of creating like an Eden. He's, he's trying to make like a new Eden, as it were. And you notice that they're all in the plural form, which means they're magnificent. There's many of them. He, he was quite effective at building. That he saw himself He saw the value of his life. Maybe it's in what I do. Maybe it's in what I produce. Maybe it's in the monuments that are left on this earth with my name on them. The temptation is still for us to find meaning this way. It it is. Many of us who work, why do do workers, men and women who spend their life working and then they retire, what am I going to do? Who am I? Uh, We build identity on what we do. Uh, we, We often... We often think it's, it's what I've produced in life that gives me meaning and value. I mean, it's easy to see what you do with your hands. That is who I am. And we begin to establish meaning and purpose and value based upon that. Well, well the preacher here fatigues of that. He moves on. He says, well, if it's not there, maybe it's in living the life of luxury. Maybe after all these building projects and you develop all this income, you have all this wealth, maybe it's a life of leisure. Look at me in 7 and 8. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings. So he's speaking about the, the life of leisure. He had servants. He had thousands. Solomon had thousands of servants. He, he didn't have to do anything for himself. He didn't have to wash any clothes. He didn't have to do any house. He didn't have to do anything. He had people doing everything for him. And, and his, the food that he ate, quantity, absolutely, quality, the, the best delicacies. If you think it's in a good meal, he had that. I mean, listen to what was at his table every day. In 1 Kings chapter 4, it says, Solomon's provisions for one day, for one day, were 30 cores, a core was six bushels. So I'll translate this. Solomon's provision for one day was 180 bushels of fine flour, 360 bushels of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. He, He was at a level of sophistication that were fattening the fowl. They think they could, they think that that kind of food could feed 10,000 people a day, which is probably how many servants he had. So can you imagine? Maybe this is the meaning of life. I've got to hit that spot where I get people to do stuff for me and I can have the highest of delicacies. I can have the most amount of food I want. But then the silver and gold. Think about the money that he had. We don't know the kind of money that he had. Listen to what it says in 1 Kings 10. All kings... 
Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the, of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. Hmm. Silver has no value because there is so much gold. I mean, he saw it. Maybe this is where the meaning of life is. Maybe this is where I'll finally be satisfied. I'll attain the top of, uh, of the culinary scale. I'll attain the top of the monetary scale or the leisure scale. This is, again, a temptation for us. Uh, the temptation is simply that, that if we finally get to have you know, the thank God it's Friday as a lifestyle, I never have to work again. Or I've got a pile of cash that I'm sitting on that I never have to worry again. I don't have to worry about life anymore because you know what? I'm now taken care of. I can take my life easy, as the man said in Luke 12. I can take my life easy, eat and drink and be merry. Maybe that's the life. That would be it for a lot. That'd be a temptation. But there's one more area that he pursued. If meaning wasn't in just the life of partying, if it wasn't in the life of establishing accomplishments, if it wasn't in the life of leisure, maybe it's in the life of entertainment. Look with me at verse 8 again. In verse 8 he says, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So he was entertained. I mean, musically, he got singers, groups of them. I mean, can you imagine with his wealth? He would have the best entertainment you could buy. He had choirs. He had dancers. He had performers. I mean, day after day, he could have the best of entertainment just to constantly distract him and give him joy and satisfaction. But not just musical entertainment, sexual entertainment. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. That means that he could spend an evening with a different woman every day for close to three years. Does that sound like heaven to some of you? Is that your fantasy? I mean, the temptation, sexual temptation, is, is strong. I mean, there's a sense that I can have greater and greater experiences sexually. Maybe that's where it is. Maybe it's the life of the Casanova. I'll conquer women. Or I'll just find my meaning and value in the arms of someone who will love me. And I will do whatever I have to do to get them to love me. Maybe that's where the meaning of life is. Are these temptations for you? What, what is most tempting to you? What, what promise out of these different areas of pleasure tempts you the most to think, if I just had more of that, you know, if I just had more fun, more friends that were fun, or, or more accomplishments in the workplace, or, or maybe more leisure, more money, or, or maybe more sex, or better sex, or different sex than I have. Maybe that's where it's at. Well, you know, Solomon speaks to this. He kind of gives a summary uh, in verses 9 and 10 about what his walk away from this test was. He says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom remained with me, and whatever my heart, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I, I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. I, you see an honesty here with Solomon. He's not saying these things weren't pleasurable. He wasn't saying a glass of wine was, was not delicious or the food was great. 
He wasn't saying that the accomplishments weren't enjoyable. He's not saying that. I want you to see he's, he's an objective learner. Two times he says, wisdom was with me. My wisdom accompanied me. He wasn't like a little kid in a candy shop. He wasn't like a drunk in a liquor store. He wasn't just trying to take it all in for that momentary pleasure. He was objectively trying to assess, is this the path of life? With these few days that we have, that we have under the sun, is this where it's at? Well, we find out what his answer was. We find out the result of his study in verse 11. Look what he says. He says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So that's what his takeaway is. He's disappointed. He's been on this search. I've tried the party scene. I've tried the accomplishment scene. I've tried the let's move towards luxury scene. And I've tried the sex scene and the entertainment scene. And you know what? It's all vanity. It's chasing after the wind. You remember the word vanity? And I want, you know, I want to make sure you understand, particularly in the language he uses, he says, I considered, I considered all that my hands had done. That word consider means to like look straight in the eye. It, it, it's not kind of a wandering thought pattern. I look straight in the eye of partying. I look straight in the eye of accomplishments. I look straight in the eye of luxury. I had it. I look straight in the eye of sexual entertainment. Look straight in the eye. And I'm telling you, it's vanity. He's giving us his report. Remember, he's looking back on his life. He's reflecting. And I found it to be vanity. Now, vanity is, remember, it's a mist. It's a vapor. Blow out the candle, you see the smoke, and it's gone. That's all it is. It's, it's there and it's gone. There's no enduring quality to it. Now, you're thinking, well, that's the life I'm seeking to live. He's saying to you, don't go down the road. It's vanity. You know, it's like, it's like cotton candy. You're eating cotton candy. It has that sweetness initially, and then all you're left with is a stick. It, it doesn't sustain. It, it doesn't last. It's fleeting. But not just is it fleeting, it's unsatisfying, ultimately unsatisfying. He's not saying, he's honest enough to say there was pleasure in my toil. He's not saying these things don't have a modicum of pleasures. We're going to see they do, and God's designed it that way. But, but he said they're not ultimately satisfying. Notice what he says. It's a striving after the wind. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. Remember that word gained, I explained a few weeks back. Uh, to be gained, it's like the profit. Like you take all the revenue, you take all the expenses. What's left over? What remains with me? That's what he's saying. There's nothing that remains with you. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't endure with you. So it's like the hamster on the wheel. He's running and running and running. He's doing all kinds of activity. He's going nowhere. He's got nothing to show for it. He hasn't moved an inch. He's just stayed in the same place. In other words, what Psalm is pointing out here is that it doesn't satisfy. There is no satisfaction in this. Uh, so if you were to sum it up, he's saying, listen, you can't find happiness in the party scene. You can have momentary points of pleasure, no doubt, no doubt. But you can't find this ultimate sense of meaning and purpose 
in the party scene. You know, I, I wish we see these beer commercials. You know, they're on television. It's always a group of great guys. and They're all hanging around, pounding beers, watching a game. And they're all having a great life. You, you never see the next morning when they're hugging this circular porcelain thing. You know, or, or, or the fine glass of wine that the lady's sipping on, long stem, it looks so sophisticated. But you, you never see that maybe she drinks too much and ends up with somebody next to her in bed that she didn't even know before she got to the bar. You, you never see the other side of it. There's no, there's no satisfaction in it. One of the members of our church asked for permission if I could share this. Uh, she had lived that kind of, you know, travel and, and party and, and living the life of the party. She's come to faith, but what was interesting, what she said to me, a bit ago, she says, I wonder, isn't there anything more? Is this all there is? I've done the traveling, I've done the partying, I've done this. Is there anything more? Is this all that there is? She was hitting the vanity. She was hitting the, un, the unsatisfaction of it. It got old. But not just as there, there can't be happiness in life. There's not happiness in accomplishments. Ultimate happiness. You know, the great presentation you give, it's got to be followed by another one. The, the really intelligent, you, the thing that you said in the meeting that people said, well, that was pretty good. You then got to do it again. The job that you have will ultimately be, fil be fulfilled by someone else. It can't satisfy because you can't last in it. You're going to be replaced. You're going to be phased out. The job will be phased out. Even Jim Carrey, you know, the actor that did uh, Dumb and Dumber and a few other movies probably in accordance with that same line of thought. Here's what he said. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. That's not a Christian viewpoint. It's a secularist speaking to his own experience. There is no ultimate joy in whatever you're able to accomplish, whatever monuments are built in your name, whatever you produce, it just can't last, so it can't provide meaning for you. Or, or, or abundance and luxury. There, there is no ultimate happiness in abundance or luxury. Listen, if there, if there were to be meaning and value, we would have it. Do you realize that we in this room, we know more luxury than those of nobility less than 200 years ago? The homes that you live, temperature controlled. The food that you eat, the variety. The, the freezers that you can pull out. The stores that you shop in. The, the selection of food, how it's presented. The travel that you have with cars, even air conditioning. Many heated seats, even cooled seats now. The, the medical opportunities that you have. The health that you enjoy. What? Out of all humanity that has existed on this globe, who has known what you know? <clears throat> you can be middle-class America and live higher than the kings of old. And yet you still are tempted to think, if I just had that job, or if I had a little bit more money, or if I had a little bit more security, or a little bit more recognition, we're still tempted to think that way. Alexis de Tocqueville, the French aristocrat that came to America to see this thing called democracy in the 19th century. He says there's a, a haunting melancholy with the Americans who live in such abundance. We have this tremendous abundance and we're not happy. Isn't that amazing? We're not happy in it. In fact, there's 10 times more cases of clinical depression in the last 50 years 
There's this, there's this, as one author said, this eerie synchronization that as prosperity increases, clinical depression increases along with it. You can't find happiness in abundance. And, and sexual experiences, there's no ultimate happiness in that. I mean, God has designed our sexual pleasure to be finite. We don't want it, and that's why you have the explosion of porn and Tinder or other hookup apps. We want those experiences that will somehow scratch that itch that we have. And yet God has designed the sexual experience to be of finitude. There's only a certain level of joy that you can draw from it. And yet we want to be God. We want to redefine what our sexual experience will be. There's no meaning in that. You know, one author kind of painted this world this way. It's as if you and I, you know, it's like you're planted on this deserted island and you're given 10 options for food and you're given 10 options for entertainment. And that's all you get. Now that may appear to be like, wow, that's what I'm looking for in life. But think about as the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years. Same options. They're all limited. It is for us, the forms of entertainment. Can't you imagine how, they, how ragged and tired and frustrated they become? You can't leave the island. You can't increase the options. It is what it is. We got what we got. And over time, it would just wear you down. You'd be frustrated. You'd be futile. You might finally embrace the theology of Mick Jagger. You know I had to go here. I can't get no satisfaction. Now, this is a secularist speaking to us. Remember what he says. Yeah, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, you know that he tries and he tries and he tries and he tries. He says, when I'm driving in my car and the man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more. That's what we hear about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. He can't get no satisfaction. That is this world. That is life in exile. See, what the writer of Ecclesiastes is doing, it's not a depressing book. He's painting us in a corner. He's resonating with our despair. This is what we feel when we try to draw meaning out of this life, out of the pleasures of this life. He's, he's identifying with us to lead us out. So you have this search that he's made, this search for pleasure, right? The party, the work, the luxury, the sexual experiences. And then he makes this discovery. This, is, this discovery is it's vanity. It won't last and it can't satisfy you. So let me save you the effort that I went through. That's why I did the test. Let me save you the effort. So where is the silver lining here? Where is the, where is the light that pierces the darkness in this passage? Well, let me give you four things to consider. And I'm going to put them to you because, you know, I always tell my kids I love them. Uh, they know I love them, but I, I don't want them to forget it. So I tell it to them my kids and all of my children, and, and I love you, so I don't want you to forget this. So I'm going to give you four things to remember. I, I'd ask you to do this today. So I'm not asking you just to consider some ethereal experience that you may have. I want you to do it. I want you to maybe take time even this afternoon and think on maybe one or two of these things. First, I would say I don't want you to forget the hope in futility. There is hope in the futility that we face. Don't forget the hope. In, I think the futile nature of our life, I think the frustration that we cannot even find 
uh, we can't even find meaning and pleasure. I think that's the grace of God preventing us from trying to make the gifts a God. I, I think it's his kindness to us to prevent us from having joy in these things, the frustration and the fatigue you have. You have a new pair of pants. Within two years, you see a new style. You want that. You're not happy. Your pants are just fine. We don't buy new clothes because our clothes have fallen to pieces. We buy new clothes because we want something new. That's why we buy them. We all do that. There's a frustration there, a futility there. He simply says, let the despair press you to God. You know, God has set eternity in the heart of man. That's what we read in Ecclesiastes 3.11. God has put eternity in the heart of man. God will not let you be satisfied in the things of this world. That is his grace to you. His grace is that you won't find that ultimate pleasure in this life. When you and I try to make the gifts of God into serving us as God, we'll be disappointed. You, you can play tennis with an orange. It, it is round. It is small. And you can play tennis with an orange. It doesn't, it doesn't work real well. There aren't a lot of points scored. And when you try to take the gifts of God and you try to make them into God, uh, you make them mini-gods, you make them substitutes for God, uh, you will not be satisfied. But in that, God is preventing you from wasting your life. You know, there's a book called um, The Flesh, the World, and Mr. Smith. It was written in 1945, a Scottish author. And from that book comes this quote that I shared with you a number of years ago that I think bears repeating. And the quote is simply this. The quote is that um, every young man that rings the bell on a brothel is unconsciously seeking God. You know, we want to substitute, in this case, sex for God. We really want God. We really want him because he set eternity in our heart. You won't be satisfied with temporal things when you've been made eternally. And, and so don't forget the despair is driving us to find a deeper hope, a deeper longing for God. Uh, secondly, don't forget the purpose of gifts. Don't forget the purpose of gifts. God has given us gifts to enjoy. The wine, the food, the intimacy with your wife, the accomplishments that you do with the gifts that he's given you, they're good things. Enjoy them. I mean, they are meant for us to be enjoyed. If you think about this in creation, you think about this. God put us in creation with all the food, all the fruit trees, and he put us there naked. He wants us to enjoy these things. Intimacy, food, work. He wants us to enjoy it. We as Christians sometimes, we think God's a killjoy. We don't know what to do with pleasure. We get scared of it. It's almost like we can't have happiness over this. We get scared to have too much joy. These gifts of, of God aren't to become God's, but they are to be means of his grace for us to love God. They're like shafts of light leading us to God. You should enjoy the wife of your youth. You should enjoy the food that you have. When you bite into it, enjoy it. You're going to be hungry again the next day, so don't enjoy it for more than it is. But enjoy it. Enjoy these things. But enjoy them as reminders to you of a greater joy that's coming to you in your union with God. If these are good things from him, how great must he be? You know, many of you have read that little meditation on a tool shed by C.S. Lewis. He kind of speaks about the nature of gifts. Let me read it to you. He said, I was standing today 
in a dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door. There came a sunbeam. Uh, from where I stood, that beam of light with the specks of dust floating in it was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I, I was seeing the beam. I wasn't seeing things by it. And then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole picture vanished. I saw no, I saw no tool shed. And above all, I saw no beam. Instead, I saw, framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green trees moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. We can look at the gifts that God has given to us, but we're to look through them to God. That's the purpose of the gifts. So enjoy the gifts for the momentary pleasure they bring, but see them as a foretaste of the glory that you'll have with God. That's the hope. All these gifts, the reason this is a despairing point is because we're making the gifts God's rather than seeing God through the gifts. So don't forget the purpose of the gifts. And then thirdly, don't forget that you're mortal. Don't forget that you're mortal. You know, you noticed in verse 2, in verse 3, he says about our days, he says that he wanted to see what was good for the children of man during their few days. What a way to think about the extent of my life. A few days. A few days. You know, death trumps the joy that can come from merriment and, and building projects and sexual experiences and luck. Death renders all of them ultimately meaningless. Death renders them meaningless. But, you know, it's so easy. We don't like to think about our own death. It, it, for some reason, it seems to terrify us. You know, Blaise Pascal, I quoted him last week, he's a French inventor of the 17th century. He said these words, he said, As men have not been able to cure death, misery, and ignorance, they've taken to not thinking about it so as to become happy. Is that not true? That was 400 years ago he said that, and it's true today. We, we, we just won't think about it, and then, we'll, then we can be happy. Our, our happiness is momentary until the next funeral or until you get sick. I, I don't want you to have to get cancer to start thinking about death. This isn't a morbid experience. In thinking about death, you will, you will prevent yourself from making gods out of temporal pleasures. In thinking about death, you will enjoy. The small things will become profound things for you. You'll begin to smell roses differently. You'll enjoy pleasures differently. If you talk to anybody with a terminal illness, they get more joy out of life. Those who are rightly aligned with God will, will find pleasures to be in the sweeter things. You know, instead of the big accomplishments at the office, what people talk about when they have months left to live, not what they did at the office. It's usually the relationship they have with a child or maybe some relationship they have with someone else. It, we have to think about that. That's why the psalmist in 90, 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You know, Jonathan Edwards, of course, a great theologian in New England in the 18th century, his seventh resolution, he says, I resolve to know the brevity and the shortness of one's life. Why? Because there's a lot of smarts that you gain when you realize you're not going to live forever. It's not a morbid 
not when you know the one to whom you go. So don't forget your mortality. And then last, don't forget that you live in exile. Now, uh, let me explain this to you. You know, when I speak about exile, as we've been speaking about lately over these last few weeks, exile is the land in which we live. It's this earth. It's the fallen creation, right? So you have Adam and Eve. They're with God in the garden. Life is as it should be in every way. It's beautiful. And of course, they rebel against God. They sin against God. And so what? They're moved out of the garden and they're put in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, there is death and there is frustration. And there is futility. It is a world that is untethered to God. That's what exile is. We're not exile. It's not speaking geographically. We're not outside of the United States of America. But we are outside of Eden, or what God had originally intended us to be. So we live in exile. So you need to remember that you live in exile. Now, remembering that you live in exile means that you're looking for someone to bring you back to God. So, so living in exile, you're constantly being reminded, I'm not home yet. I need someone to rescue me. I need someone to deliver me. The whole, the whole story of the Bible is rescue from exile. Sending a son, the promise in Genesis 3.15, that one will come to lead us back to God. And this is what we have in Jesus Christ. We have the promised one who has come to deliver us, to lead us back to God, to bring us back to God, to bring us back from exile, back into a new heavens and new earth. So we're in exile right now, waiting. He has come. And this is a beautiful part of it. And this is why for us, Ecclesiastes is never a despairing book. One has come, Jesus has come, and he's died. And he's been raised to give us new life. Now what's interesting about this is simply this, that it was, it was food, it was eating of the fruit, it was taking a gift of God and misusing the gift, misusing the gift that drew Adam and Eve into exile. Food led us out of Eden into exile. Jesus says, it's my bread and it's my body, the, the bread and the wine. It's food that leads us back into God. He uses food again, but the food is representative of his body, broken, his, his blood shed for us so that we can be reunited with God. He brings forgiveness. He brings reconciliation. He brings adoption so that, that no longer do we live in exile but we've been reunited with God. We have to remember that, that we're waiting for one to come. This is the invitation of Christ. You, you know, in Isaiah 55, at the end of Isaiah, you see these promises of a new heavens and, and a new earth coming. And, and Isaiah just, the, the uh, last chapters are just filled with excitement over what's coming. And here's what he says in 55. He says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That sounds beautiful. He says, why spend money on what is not bread? Why do you labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, then you may live. That's the invitation that God is giving through the prophet Isaiah. So not surprisingly, when Jesus Christ comes to the earth, he picks up the same language. He meets that Samaritan woman. 
He asks her for a drink. Samaritan woman in John 4, you know the woman. She's sleeping with men, so she has a place to stay. She's on her fifth man by the time Jesus sees her. He asks her for something to drink. She gets him something to drink. And that brings up this conversation where Jesus says to her, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He'll be satisfied. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He gives eternal life. This is where meaning and purpose and satisfaction is found. The one that has overcome death. But Christ has invited us to believe this. He says in John 7, he says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, can you imagine the scene? Jesus stands up and he cries out. So, so this, is, this is an attention-grabbing experience here. He cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is where meaning and purpose is found. It's, it's coming back to God through faith in Christ, being reconciled to the one who has created us, being retethered, as it were, to God. That's an invitation to us. Now, some of you are Christian here. You have perhaps heeded that invitation, and you've responded to him by faith. You've repented of your sins, and, and you've said, yes, in him is life eternal. Rejoice in that. Enjoy the things that he gives you in these remaining years of exile, because you will be united to him. Don't make more out of the food, out of the sex, out of the job. Use it for his glory and your joy. That's why he says, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. Even, even drinking a cup of coffee can be for his glory. If you're here, though, and, and you are struggling with meaning and purpose, and, and you have tried the, the parties, the work, the sex, the luxury. Jesus' invitation stands. He says, come to me. All you are heavy laden and burdened, I'll give you rest. I'm humble and gentle of heart. Take my yoke upon you. I'll give you rest for your souls, he says. He'll give you a sense of satisfaction and peace and meaning and value. That's why Ecclesiastes, he's doing what I try to do. Each week, paint you in a corner so that the one way of escape is Christ. And that's what he's done for us today. Let's take a moment and ask God for grace and mercy that he would cause these truths to be resonant in our soul that they would produce. I would ask you to consider these things today, to do them, to walk in them. Let's not be hearers only. Let us be hearers and doers. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.